Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Mary Lou Rasmussen. Mary Lou is a leading light in feminist research, sexuality and gender studies, and she has a long career of theoretically driven qualitative research. But at the same time, she's recently been involved in a few high-profile research projects that use large-scale nationwide surveys of young people to explore issues of religion and sexuality. So all in all, Mary Lou is one of Australia's leading researchers currently working in the area of young people and education. So first off, I asked Mary Lou to describe the key issues that underpin her work. I'm really interested in young people and how young people are apprehended as policy objects. And also I'm interested in relationships between young people and like my PhD research was looking at how LGBTQ young people like become subjects within policy. So rather than thinking that these people already exist and we can help them, I was really interested in like what, how they like come into being. Mm. That was interviewing and talking to adults about young people and then I became much more interested in talking to young people themselves yeah, yeah. about how they're thinking about and apprehending the world around them. And I've really been interested in intersections within that space between gender and sexuality yeah. and cultural and religious difference. And so schools are generally the sites of your inquiries? or um, Sometimes, not always. Like I've done um, two ARCs located in schools. And I did another one which wasn't school-based at all. Mm. But all of my um, ARCs have involved like different sorts of different methodologies I've used and methods, but it's um, all three of them have involved young people. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've got methods on one hand, but we've also got kind of theory and approach. And I guess your work is grounded in a feminist tradition. And I'm just really interested in unpacking how feminist work is kind of now taking hold in, in education. I mean, on the face of it, feminist scholarship has altered tremendously over the past 20 years. But I mean, what, what are the core themes and agendas and, and common concerns that run throughout the feminist work? I think that feminism's changing so rapidly. Like, and I think that there's, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the way that debates about feminism and gender move together and apart across yeah. time. And I think that um, there is never obviously one way of thinking about feminism, but there's, I think, quite interesting tensions and debates about like how we think about gender and the, the prominence of gender in discussions of feminism. And also, I think, what the relationship is between, say, feminism and sexuality studies. Yeah, yeah. And so how do these things come together? And I think that they're always informing one another, but they're never the same thing. Like, I suppose that the people that I am interested in are ones that are really trying to think across feminist theory, gender studies and sexuality studies and bringing those together. Yeah. I mean, are there any kind of interesting names, interesting projects that we should be looking for? Um, I've got a new colleague at ANU um, called Celia Roberts. 
and she has um, written a great book called Puberty and Crisis. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. And um, it's um, feminist techno science studies, mm. but it's really, I think, absolutely germane to education. And she's actually done some follow-up work like that. Work was looking at the way that um, the age of puberty is coming down in terms of like like when young women are developing breast buds and like how their bodies are changing mm. shape. And she's talking to um, girls' parents in that book about how they are able to um, understand that process and negotiate it with schools and with medical experts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that talking with the girls' parents was really interesting um, like there was one story she tells that a mother recounts about her daughter who decided to go on puberty blockers because the school wouldn't install sanitary bins in the toilets at the primary school because they thought it was like developmentally inappropriate. inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so interesting, like how these things come together. Like I don't think you would have necessarily anticipated that at the beginning of the project. but no. like. And nor would you have found that out if you'd done a kind of pure education research project, just looking at the schools. And I mean, these it's clearly interdisciplinary. All of these, all of these approaches. So, yeah. I mean, we've got sexuality, gender, feminism. I mean, I'm really interested in your work in queer studies as well. And I've noticed, must from my own point of view, there's been a kind of turn towards queer perspectives in all sorts of education research. And I'm just wondering, for someone who's worked in the kind of queer studies tradition for a long, long time, I mean, what do you make of that? Oh, there's lots of different schools of thought around queer studies, and I suppose I'm most interested in queer studies that is really thinking about how the world is made and, and how things are askew, mm. how norms are produced, relations of power. And I think that those are, are kind of go across a lot of different traditions within education research. Yeah. I think you could see that in um, a lot of different work that's in thinking about power in schools. So I think that where my work might be constituted as queer is in, in you know thinking about debates like how do we deal with um, sexual freedom from a perspective that's thinking about not one locus of power. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I think that the debates at the moment around religious exemptions in Australian schools um, are really interesting to me from a queer perspective. Yeah. If you if you don't want to provide a normative account which says that this is the way that everybody should think about gender and sexuality in education, then how do you apprehend the place of people who are um, have strong religious commitments in education, what's the place for them? Yeah. And also what's the place for people who um, have got really different ideas about gender and sexuality? Mm. So there's kind of like these ongoing politics, I think always in the background about how people think about gender, sex and sexuality and their relationships. And I think that um, that has consequences for all sorts of different debates across education. But I think that sometimes queer stuff in education gets taken only to mean representations of LGBTQ people. Yeah, yeah. And for me, that I kind of draw a distinction between studies about LGBTQ people versus queer studies, which I think is quite a different project in my mind. But I know that that's not true for everybody in that space. I mean, you were talking about how your work looks at culture and sexuality and religion. I mean, these are kind of tricky topics. Um, and I really wanted to kind of talk about how that's working out for you. And you mentioned a few of your recent ARC projects. I mean, 
Say the research project that was looking at sexual citizenship, for example. I mean, what was the research problem? What did you find? But then what broader agendas and policy and media storms did you find yourself bumping up against? So in the um, Queer Generations project, we were really interested in how people who are like in their 40s and 50s, who are really the people who are making policy about queer youth, mm. We really kind of like they were kind of people that we wanted to be in conversation with. Yeah, yeah. Like we we wanted to compare the generations because we wanted to look at the experiences of people who grew up before the decriminalisation of homosexuality and then after. Mm. But really what we're trying to do is I think is to, to complicate and educate about how these different generations are talking about their experiences and informing one another. And also conceptually and theoretically, we're interested in pushing the idea of what we think a queer generation is. And also um, one of the big findings from the project was about the way that thinking about sexual and gender identity is just so fluid now. Like it's really hard to have a conversation with anybody about these things who's like under 30 and to get a sense of like in any way pinning them down about their sex, their gender, their sexual identification. Mm. And also, um, you know, it's things about like there's grey romantics, for instance, which are, you know, people who are um, not too sure if they want to be in a full-on relationship but like have uh, and like what that means in terms of sexuality. Yeah, yeah. But they're still like, you know, like the idea of it. So yeah. methodologically, I guess, it's interesting then to work out what would a kind of queer survey look like. Yeah, I've just been writing a paper actually. It's hopefully I'm just about to go out this week for review and it's about the design of the survey for our project. Mm. And it's been um, and like how do you design a survey now when categories are so fluid? Both in like this, um, the worldviews project is um, trying to understand um, how Gen Z, which is people who were born like after um, two thousand and five, are trying to imagine how they develop the way they think about the world. And, And because we did a national survey, I was really committed to not wanting to talk to young people who were from a particular category in advance. So it was really important to me and to the group that we had a representative sample of Australian young people. In yeah. terms of the paper that you just mentioned, their methodology, how do we do survey research with Gen Z? Is it all open-ended questions, surely? We were really interested in like trying to, I think, queer the categories as part of the survey. Mm. So we were, and so like in this article, we look at all the different surveys that influenced ours and all of the ways that they designed questions around religion and spirituality and gender and sex and sexuality. And then we tried to think about, like, how would we make these as open as possible? And also how will we ask them in a way that um, young people can answer them when they're being called and their parents might be in the room? Yeah, yeah. So, so we've got open-ended questions for those things as well as categories. Because some people don't know the young people that we spoke to who were in still at high school, which is we were talking to young people aged 13 to 18. Some of them didn't know what gender was yeah. or what sexuality was. So you can't, uh, so you've got to kind of prompt them a little bit and you've got to, and, and they were very confused, which I think a lot of adults are, about what's the difference between gender, sex, and sexuality. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of have to educate them in the survey questions as well through the categories. Through the categories. So, um, but you can also like offer open ended answers as well, which quite a few of the young people used. In fact, 15% of the young people from this national sample identified as not straight, mm. which I thought was fascinating, like in terms of their percentage. Yeah. 
and then like looking at the different ways that they were identifying and the richness within that. So I was going, one of my final questions was going to be what's coming up for the future, but it sounds like you've got a huge kind of task on your hands just with that. I mean, how are you going to take that forward? Yeah. Are you going to be doing much more of this kind of survey work, but push, pushing forward on the boundaries of methods? I don't know, like, you know, because I, I feel like um, one of the things that I'm really interested in doing next is around, I'm really interested in questions of fertility. Like I'm interested particularly in low fertility as an idea and how low fertility gets produced as a thing. Yeah, yeah. How do we, like what should our relationship to low fertility be? Should we, like I think if you look at Extinction Rebellion, it's kind of a political tactic. It can be something which gets used in population debates. Mm. I think it's something which we, uh, like there's medical educators going out trying to say that we should have school education about low fertility as part of sexuality education. Like I'm kind of in, trying to think about how I can um, do something around low fertility. Yeah, yeah. And and you have the freedom to do that now because you moved from Monash <laughs> Faculty of Education to ANU School of Sociology, which is a fantastic move. And I just find a final question. I mean, You've worked around lots of various schools of education, faculties of education. Now you're in a school of sociology. I mean, what struck you as the difference? What can schools and faculties of education learn? It's been a really interesting thing for me trying to make that move. I moved as a professor um, into a school of sociology, but I feel in some ways very junior mm, doing mm. that because, you know, I don't, I've had all of my, edu- all of my academic life's been in education. But in terms of thinking about um, theoretical questions, like I think lots of people in education always think in an interdisciplinary fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. And so in some ways, like what I do now is no different to what I did at Monash. And in other ways, it just means it can expand. I don't have to make arguments now about why something like low fertility can be looked at in this fashion and like really make it only linked to like school debates. I can think about it. I think I feel like I don't have to make an argument about why I should be able to look at it more expansively. Yeah, yeah. So you, but you can always go back into the education. I mean, I'm sure that's how academia is going now. We are much more interdisciplinary. I think so, and I think the people whose thinking I really admire um, are often, you know, working in that space and and reading widely and trying to draw across like an array of different. Um, theoretical resources and continuing to read (laughs) in order to, and I think that that's one thing I really love about um, being at ANU. There's just such an amazing intellectual life there, I think, in terms of reading groups and um, people coming through the university and and also support to make stuff happen in that space. There's hope for us all. We just need to be interested and interesting. (laughs) Fantastic. Many thanks for that, Mary Lou. It's been great to have a little time to talk to you and good luck for the future. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it.